But one is that diversity has become a, a word that is fraught. But the basic idea is that people from different backgrounds and walks of life, when they come together, can contribute something special and new and different. And when you set the grounding for psychological safety, it is magical. And I really believe in the power of diversity and that the piece that's missing that I think many teachers don't realize is the second piece. You have to set the psychological grounding. And I have to look at you, Ben, and say, you have something to share that I need, that I want to know. And I have to draw that, I have to create the conditions to draw that out. And when you put the psychological safety together with the diversity, that's how innovation is going to really grow. Welcome to the Rooted in Relationships podcast, where we talk with renowned researchers and experts about the scientific insights that can help you build meaningful relationships with young people. I'm Ben Holberg, your host, CEO and president of Search Institute, where our own research over the past 60 years has found relationships to be the roots that all young people need to grow and thrive. What an incredible opportunity to be here with Valerie today. And I'm so excited about her work because Valerie has been doing amazing work that that early on even started with making small changes and in interventions called wise interventions to make big differences with young people, but has also expanded a lot of her research to wider thinking around economics and cultural psychology and microbiology. And her wisdom and tidbits today are going to be so applicable for our listeners in the practitioners and and teachers as we dive into these topics, but also because of her deep commitment to understanding intergroup behaviors and relationships at a time that it is so critical for us to have these conversations with the inequities across multiple domains now. And we know that as students will be returning back to, to school and class and their experiences are going to be very different based on their different identities. And, and Valerie has done an, an incredible amount of work around the intersectionality of identities and stigmatizing of certain identities. So welcome today, Valerie, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ben. I am absolutely delighted to, to be here. Here is always in quotations, but because we're never anywhere, I'm still in the basement of my house. But I hope you and your family are safe and sound, and I'm just thrilled to be part of this conversation. Yes, I thank you for that, and I hope, I hope your family as well, too. Let's dive in. I would love to hear more about your story, Valerie, of what brought you to this point and wanting to become a really applied researcher, but also a scientist and understanding in intergroup connections. My mother, who is now in her uh, mid-80s, was a third grade school teacher. She taught at uh, Brook Avenue schools out in uh, Bayshore, Long Island. I believe she retired at year 30. And so my father worked at uh, MacArthur Airport, but I was but I was really, I didn't think about it at the time, but really inspired by, by my mother in a couple of ways. I would be the one who during the summer would go help her set up her classroom for the fall. And we'd go to those places that are now defunct where you get all of the markers and the stickers. And my job was to help decorate the classroom. And I just remember how important the context was. And what she would always tell me was to things. Be nice to the janitors because they actually run the school. 
And if you're not nice, you will get nothing from them. And I think that is carried forward to me because I always think about who are the people that have hidden sources of power. And the second sort of nugget that she always gave me is that the, the context drives the class. And so she said, you have to come in ready to create a learning environment so that students would learn. And so my mother was, you know, one of the, I think, originators. It's funny that I, I wound up being a research assistant for Carol Dweck and the growth mindset, but my mom just sort of, that was just who, who she was. My brother and I being a part of that environment, I remember every holiday we'd pack up just gifts, toys, books, some of my clothes, sometimes even lotion and soap. And she would bring it to, to the kids and families around Bay Shore. So I, when I think back, I think I always thought of myself as an extension of her as a, as a teacher. And then I sort of have a couple of, of, of interesting moments. You know, fast forward, I went to college, I went to, to Columbia University, and I, I graduated from Columbia College, but I was recruited to play basketball there. So I really didn't sort of think of myself as an intellectual. I thought of myself as an athlete. And now it's funny because now I think of myself as an intellectual and I'm dying to rethink of myself as an athlete. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, and what's interesting is, is while I was there, one of my favorite classes was by uh, Geraldine Downey and Lois Putnam called Children at Risk. And Geraldine Downey is now one of my colleagues and dear friends because I'm, I'm a professor there today. And then one of my other favorite classes was Carol Dweck's uh, Growth Mindset. And then my third favorite class was Delay of Gratification with Walter Michelle. So, you, you know, you don't get much, you know, you don't get much better than that. And, and at the time, once again, I didn't really know what was in store, but I just remember thinking that giving students of all races, ethnicities, um, I didn't really think about sexual identity at the time, but religion, opportunities to succeed and the transfer of knowledge from what I'm learning to, to what other communities should have is, is really important. So, Valerie, one thing that strikes me as you describe really your interest, curio early curiosity in grad school, too, is some ways you, you really just, you want to understand the ingredients that your mom created in the classroom. Yes, yes. I didn't, I didn't really think about that at the time, but I knew I wanted to work with children. And after college, I went to work for the I Have a Dream Foundation in uh, Stamford, Connecticut. I knew that all children sort of come into this world ready to succeed. I didn't have the language for that, but then sort of, then it becomes a really interesting puzzle and as, as well as a, of, of a question of social justice, how do you create equal opportunity? But you really have to start with the mindset that all children are able to grow and flourish and all children thrive under the right conditions. And if you don't believe that, you're kind of, there's nowhere to go after right. that. And I've seen many, you know, good teachers, they, they don't think about themselves as parents, but they do think of themselves as gardeners, you know, and you, and, and that I think is almost a cliche these days, but if you really believe it, it actually has power and meaning. And there's nothing like having children to realize that you are going to figure out every structure you can put in place to make them succeed. And what I, I guess I've always been thinking about, how do you do that for all children? Yeah, really tending to the soil, that the plant and the beauty of the plant will thrive if it has the right, right. ingredients. Yeah. Right, right. And it's 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 not about, you know, you could do whatever you want to the plant itself, right? It's the ground that, it, that it's in. And I love that analogy because, you know, my research is about setting conditions. The science that I do is about, is about understanding conditions. And even now, as I've expanded it to think more about adults in, in the workplace, 
workplace as well. Anytime you have a learning opportunity and there's inequity, why are we thinking about people's personalities, right? We should be thinking about, uh, that's one factor, but I think for me, at least a more important factor is, is sort of what does that soil look like over the course of the lifespan? So Yeah, I love that you tied that together, the, the workplace too, because if we think about relationships within schools, within out-of-school time organizations, that we often forget that the adult relationships really matter for the relational conditions for the youth too. I want to go back to kind of your Hall of Fame cast of professors, <laughs> right? Like, But I also want to pick up on kind of the contribution that you made, even from learning from these cast of amazing characters, because I think if you think about positive youth development in its early stages, sometimes there could be kind of a gloss over of the real struggle or some of the racism and oppression that was happening. But really your ability to navigate both of those stories of the belief that all children deserve, (laughs) you know, love and trustworthiness and opportunity, but also understand there's inequities there. How did you start to put those together for you, Valerie, as you started to get kind of a background around positive youth development, but also making sure to address those inequities. So I think there's one other piece to the story. So you, so you think about the the Hall of Famers and the real Hall of Famers are my children in the first job that I had. I was director of the I Have a Dream Foundation in Stanford, Connecticut. And it was at a time, it seems like a million years ago, but my class was the first class in the United States that had transitioned from a class. So the I Have a Dream Foundation is a foundation that helps children provide sponsorship. But more importantly, there's a college uh, funding at the end of the rainbow where the, the, the sponsors commit upfront when the children are, are in third grade to, to have a college education. Previously, this program had only been through schools, through an entire third grade class. And I was the first cohort that they were experimenting with doing it in a housing project. So I had all third graders who lived in an area, but went to different schools, which presented all of these these challenges. But man, there is nothing like figuring out that the scholarship that you learn in college does not translate than trying to figure out how to put together a summer program for a bunch of third graders in the housing project. It's hot. They don't like you. <laughs> they want to eat all day. And you're like, wait, where is the fear? What's mindset? And they're like, yeah, we're not doing that. We're going to do hair braiding over here. And, we're yeah. gonna do pro- and then you you realize that, okay, we're doing something different. We're, we're doing something different here. And, and what's, I actually think that they made me a scholar because- uh. What happened during that period of time was the inequity was really quite stark. The housing project was right off of exit six in Stanford, Connecticut. It's no longer there, but it was bordering Greenwich, Connecticut. So literally, I would literally ride my bike as a college graduate three quarters of a mile, and I would be at this gorgeous lake. And I'd always tell the kids, come with me. And they were like, we don't belong there. Oh, I'd say, come with me downtown. And they were like, we don't, we don't do that. We stay here. And it raised all of these questions. I'll give you a few of them. If you are offering a college, full college scholarship to one child in a family, what does that do? You call one child a dreamer, and then the rest are just 
what do you do with that? What's what's the impact of that on the other children? You know, should I, as the director, advocate for children, particularly children of color? They were all black. They were all children of color, and some were uh, Latinx. But do I advocate, or do I teach the parents to advocate in the schools? We had mentors. We had one mentor for every child, and at the time, there were sixty. We expanded it to one hundred and twenty children. And the mentors were wealthier than I have even seen today. I mean, they had boats, they had airplanes, they had, I mean, just all, because they were mostly really wealthy investment bankers in Greenwich and wonderful people, but they were almost all white American. And the simple question of what does this level of inequity, but yet opportunity, what is the impact of that? So I actually started getting interested in questions that at the time when I'd go back to the library, there were no answers. And that's how I realized that a scientist is a person who has questions that they're just trying to find the answers to. And science is just a set of tools, you know, but if you don't have the questions, it doesn't really matter. But that's kind of really where it came from. And it was fascinating how even I would go back to Walter Michelle, I'd go back to Carol Dweck, and I'd, and I'd ask them these questions, and they're like, well, you know, it's just really difficult, and, you know, that's not exactly what we do. But And it was, it was really, you know, through more of the work of, of my other mentor, Geraldine Downey, that, that sort of got, that was, that was sort of helping me bridge the gap because boy, is there a gap between science and practice? It's closing today. You know, this is one of the themes that you and I sort of yep. rip, rip on all the time is closing, but it's still, you know, that question of like, what do you do with this huge paper on child development? Like, what do you do yeah. with that? You yeah. know, it's like you would use it like a telephone book so you could sit on so you could braid somebody's hair. But, right. You know, <laughs> so, but really that that gap is massive. So anyway, so all of that together made me sort of think about issues of inequity in a couple ways. I mean, one, I think, is my own personal journey. I think that for me, I never would say I felt discrimination, I felt racism, but I certainly felt otherized. And I certainly felt the sort of gnaw of low expectations, you know, like no one, no one, you know, they expected me to be an amazing basketball player, but, you know, kind of like whatever, whatever else at, at school. But one of the things, at least in my generation, I'm almost 50, one of the things that I learned is that you know, you really can't put all of your emotional eggs in a basket of an institution that wasn't designed for you. It doesn't mean you can't care. It doesn't mean you can't be a part of it. But if you put all of your emotional eggs in that basket, as opposed to your church, your community, your family, I feel like it opens you you up to the impact of, of that otherism on you. So in a way, it's weird that I'm doing research on belonging because I, I've also done a little bit of research showing that that kind of slight separation, that distance, the little bit of the lack of belonging can almost be a protective factor. Because you're like, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm going to, you know, sort of stand back a little bit. The, the challenge related to that, and we can get to this in the research studies, is that you might emotionally feel good, but it's hard to perform at your best when you're not 100% all in. 
but but in terms of grades and performance and you know motivation, you know, can you just you know sit and work on a paper for twelve hours a day? It's really hard to have that persistence when yeah. you feel a slight kind of disconnection. But for me, I, I've kind of almost always felt that, and I remember having this this moment literally a couple months ago as Columbia campus started to open up, and I looked at the steps and I said, you know, my my now thirteen year old basically grew up here. She used to slide down the steps and other crazy things, stand in the middle of the sprinkler. Yeah. And, you know, and I was an undergrad there. I played basketball there. I'm now a faculty member there. I'm now a tenured professor. And I said, my now husband is a trustee. And I'm like, what does it take for a person of color to feel a sense of belonging? Mm. Like, it doesn't get any better than that. Right. You know? There's no more Columbia-ish you could possibly be. And I still have that slight feeling of reservation, you know, Greg Wilson calls it, you know, so uncertainty about belonging. And it's, it is bedeviling, I think, but it's something that you always navigate. And it's also, that has become a big piece of what I have conducted research yeah. on, as well as try to help my, my students think about. What an amazing context to your work, Valerie. And thank you for sharing that vulnerability as well of just that ongoing, even with the status that you have and all the amazing work you have, I'm sure there's so many listeners out there that can relate to that piece, that really yes. feel it uh, yes. in, the, in their heart when, when you say that, whether they're, you, whether they're principals or superintendents. or yes. And I think it's really important to, to acknowledge that. So thank you for sharing that. And then you could tell me how accurate this is. But the idea that the practitioner also has a wisdom that's really important, that they're doing things in their practice on a, on a regular basis. And there's ways to embed science into the practices that have big differences. And I think that line of work that you've done around decreasing the trust gap between African-American mm-hmm. students and white students and the intervention, the trust-restoring practices, and and then also thinking about the self-affirmation exercises, yeah. right? That yeah. were really this continuous thing for sixth and seventh graders or the grading practices. Those are just three that, that I can think of offhand around this wise intervention. Let's break those down for the audience a little bit about, about how small changes in practices can really have long-lasting effects. And that's kind of a good way to think about that complexity. Like science can give us information as a practitioner that can make real impact if we have that kind of strong relationship. So I don't know which one you want to start with there, but I just found all three of those as being just fantastic. I want to say a couple of things. I think even before we sort of break down the, the actual research, I think there is some research, but I think the next sort of big fix is the relationship between practitioners and, and scientists, because that I have never met a practitioner who's just a practitioner. You know, right. practitioners are scientists. They are experimenting. That's right. That's right. And they're, they're experimenting on our children, you know, so mostly for better, some, some not always. And the idea that the scientist sort of knows everything, any good program of research, we know that that's not true. And so part of the complexity is reimagining the ecosystem, which, which of course, you know, this is a lot of what you do, right? But we need to continue to reimagine the, the ecosystem, the source of power related to practitioners and, and scientists. And I, I tease my mom all the time. I was like, you know, you are a scientist. Yep. And, you know, she kind of, you know, doesn't really quite get it. She's like, I'm just trying to, you know, help kids. But, but that shift in mindset of who is the storehouse of the knowledge, I think, will also start to shift the kind of ecosystem and allow 
people who are interested in, you know, schoolwork as well as community work, we can sort of work work together. And I'm not saying that I've invented this idea. It is happening, but but I but I think we need to continue to lean yeah, in on that. Yeah, absolutely. When when you think about the the specific research that that I've done, it's very much in in collaboration with a whole host of people. Jeff Cohen, who's about to come out with a fabulous book, you should probably talk to him too. Dave Yeager, Dave Sherman. Uh, so I'm trying to use their proper names because I've got nicknames for all yeah. of them, <laughs> like Yeager, Sherman. You know, Greg Walton, and then now there's a newer generation of of scientists, and all of us have been working for a very long time on a very small problem, which is how do you leverage change in the context of classrooms? And for me, I've always been interested in how do you reduce opportunity gaps originally between African Americans and white Americans, and also when you look at women and girls in STEM relative to men. And what we have found, really inspired by, you know, my my advisor, Claude Steele, is that, you know, many different types of disciplines, sociology, focus on the social structure. But what psychologists can bring is to combine the social structure with students' interpretation of what is happening to them, their perceptions of, of what's happening to them, and also the perceptions of the interactions that they're having. There are a wide variety of, of things that you can do to do that. So for instance, I've done research for quite a long time on self-affirmation theory, which is a very simple, small writing exercise that's designed to reduce stress, to reduce students' relationship to stress so that it's it's like I can cope with this stress, sort of a secondary appraisal. It also physiologically reduces stress. We have some nice work on that. But the way it happens is when students are writing about their values, they value their friends, their family, their religion, music, taking a mask off, you know, all these kinds of things. What it does is that in moments of stress, it kind of makes you see the bigger picture so that I am more than this teacher yelling at me. You know, I am more than this ERB test or SAT test. I am bigger than that moment. I am a whole person that is that is good. And that's kind of what's happening at the unconscious level. At the conscious level, you're just writing a little short paragraph about your friends and family or music or what have you. But it has a deep psychological impact. And what it does is that it just takes the heat off of situations. And one of the things we know about being a member of an underrepresented group is that there is this heightened attunement to what's going on around you. Now, in the leadership context, that actually can be good. You know, people are talking about perspective taking and, and you know, the, the idea that you're attuned to what, what other people are thinking and feeling and what's happening in the moment, that can actually be a good leadership skill over time. But when you're trying to focus on a test yep. or learning, learning something that you have to learn, a really challenging activity, trying to figure out just when to raise your hand or not raise your hand, that added level of, of attunement can be distracting and stressful because you're trying to figure out what's happening to you or might happen to you in the environment. And that gets amplified 
after about 12 years old, right? When you can start to do that transition from this is happening to me to this is happening to my people. This is a whole nother thing we can riff about because I'm constantly talking to my daughter about, you know, she's starting to learn things about race and she'll say, well, white people do this and black people do that. And and I say, we are not doing that in this family. (laughs) We're not doing that. That is stereotyping. This is what mommy studies. We are not doing that. We are going to have a more sophisticated conversation about how identity works. So anyway. there's nothing, nothing like your own children to test your your research. That's for oh, sure. Absolutely. Oh my gosh! Yeah, absolutely. I'm just like, no, we're not. We're not using that language because there was a time when people used that language against us, and it was harmful. We're trying something different. So <laughs> it's tough, but you know, you have to. I think you have to change the narrative. I, I love that. I love this idea of taking the heat off, which I think is really cool. Yes. And. And I wonder, like, when you think about self-affirmations and expanding people's self-narrative to really important meaning-value things, their, their culture, their identity, and what's important to them. In some ways, too, I wonder if that's communicating, I see you, I care about yes. you, more yes. than just yes. more than Absolutely. just your performance in this classroom. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But the, here's the trick. The trick is, and, you know, I, I feel like talking to you, you know, you know this already. The problem is when it comes from the teacher in sort of an explicit way. Like, you know, many teachers have said, can you help, we, we want to do an affirmation workbook or we want to introduce affirmations and getting to know you exercises. The other piece that we know as psychologists is that, you know, it has to come to students under the radar. And so if you say, even, you know, this research by David Sherman and colleagues showing that when you you tell people that there's this affirmation intervention is designed to help you, it doesn't actually improve performance. And in some cases, it can have backlash effects. And I say that because master teachers... I learned this from from, uh, Mark Lepper, who studies uh, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, but it's, it's true. And that's to say that master teachers understand that. Their gift is, I can see you. And they figure out ways to affirm who a child is in the moment when, when they need it. And what this exercise is doing is it's drawing on the wisdom of these master teachers and then sort of almost like, you know, skimming the the psychology off, off the top. So the way I think about it is that when you see these opportunity gaps, differences between students of color and, and white students, sometimes you see it between boys and girls. It depends on the, the environment low and high socioeconomic status. Unfortunately, there are many, many gaps to study and close. But my point is when you see these, the first thing that I think about is what is the impoverished nature of the environment psychologically? And I think about this even more today because some of the things that we as scientists thought would work don't work. It doesn't help to put more posters of uh, Michelle and Barack Obama. It helps them. Or, you know, Cesar Chavez or Beyonce or Jay-Z or right. whoever, you know, it, it helps some, mm-hmm. you know, it helps some when you bring sort of personal experiences of the students into the classroom, but then it becomes normalized. It becomes another thing that teachers do. And then the ICU power of it is gone. So it's, it's a shifting, it's a shifting kind of as the environment changes then that moment changes. And so you have to, as a, as a scientist, you, you kind of have to figure out what, what different sources of stress are and what are those different moments. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately is, 
How can we build affirming moments, you know, just sort of in, in, in what we call ecologically valid ways, right. you know, ways that just, that are just really genuine and, and authentic sort of beyond these exercises. But we have other exercises, one that really focus on shoring up trust, and they're, they're rooted in the same psychology and the same context, the idea of that uncertainty about belonging that I talked about earlier, that it's the same for me, but it's the same for, for young kids, many of them students of color, that you can be in an environment, you kind of wonder you know, what's going on here? You know, is this a place where I'm going to be discriminated against? Is this a place where, where I'm okay? And the problem is, one, it is just a crime that children should have to have that question. Mm-hmm. A. Mm-hmm. B, that they have that question in school. Yeah. And if you don't do anything, we have data after data piece after data piece showing that, particularly for African-American kids, in middle school, trust erodes pretty rapidly from sixth grade to ninth grade. I have a seventh grader and I can I see it every day. And it is it's it's you're like, what is going on in school that kids start to feel less like it's a place for them? It's part of kind of that mystery of 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 middle school, but it's also them learning about what's going on in in, in society. And so we we also have interventions that try to use small shifts in psychology to, to change the way students perceive their teachers. And we show that when you can sort of shore up trust that way, it also improves performance and reduces discipline rates. But these small changes, particularly in middle school, have dramatic effects. And the reason why they have dramatic effects is not because we're amazing scientists, but because of the complexity of the system, right? In order, you know, in New York City, for instance, you know, the difference between that nudge that gets you into a higher ranking school versus a a school that's more emphasizing of college versus less, those differences are minuscule. So when we talk about the idea that small psychological changes and nudges lead to big effects, it's not because it's big science. It's because, you know, these small trajectories, you push a kid here or there, and next thing you know, they're sort of not on the college track. And given the competitiveness of college, you know, those small nudges actually matter. So for me, it makes me hopeful because you can see that the nudge is small. They're small. And you say, wow, human thriving is not about big things. It's about small yes. things. I love that idea, Valerie, because that that hopefulness is the same thing I felt. I remember when you shared that there are things that we can change when we're intentional about them, you know? Yes. And, and, and and for me as, yeah. a, as a white male, there's a onus of responsibility for me to understand where are my biases coming through? Where are ways... Where are my blind spots? And being able to have small interventions or, or changes that we can embed really, uh, I think, is a hopeful thing, especially in the complexity of some people might say, well, I don't know how to fix the structural yes, challenges exactly. and differences. Exactly. And so they can, if we can engage even in what we do in our daily lives, that, 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 that can make a real difference. And we're talking about college you know, college entrance, admissions that you saw exactly, from your studies. Exactly. We're talking about a lot of great things, but that intentionality is so critical. I think so, because my, my, the next thing that I worry about, and it's it's almost like belonging overboard. And, and the, what I mean by that is that teachers today are learning about critical race theory in, in their own pedagogy. And the question of what is appropriate to tell children and not tell children, you know, 
I, I guess I know maybe I seem Pollyannish, but, you know, I want children to believe that good things will happen to them. And I want them to believe that when you water the soil, they will thrive and they will grow. And they have to believe that. And so when 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 teachers, you know, talk about the George Floyd, you know, verdict in school, I wonder, on the one hand, it's really important, right? When you talk about, but but I also wonder, you know, is that really the place? Because it's so important for, for children to feel like they can sort of imagine all sorts of amazing things. And it happens in, in school. I think about this because there's a really cool study that was done many years ago by, by Daryl Wow about exactly what you're talking about. He was looking at white teachers versus African-American teachers, and he was looking at students' perceptions of prejudice. And what he found is that many African-American students just look at other African-American teachers, and they assume that there's going to be a sense of connection. And when they look at white teachers, they assume there's going to be sort of a sense of connection. But what's cool about his research is that he then flips it and says, okay, well, what happens if the African-American teacher maybe shows in a variety of ways that they endorse stereotypes? And what happens to the white teachers if they kind of affirm that they don't? And what's cool about that study is that it shows that, you know, students shift Students change. They get the message. When the white when the white teacher sort of shows in a variety of subtle ways that that they are not down with stereotypes, that they believe in them, students' levels of trust increases, their performance increases, and you get the opposite effect with the African American teacher, such that when you believe that they are going to be sort of racist or that you believe that they're going to stereotype you, then you, your your performance drops and your, your lack of uh, belonging increases. And I say that because, again, it's the small things. And also, when I think about how to think about white teachers, I mean, I'm not white, but, you know, based on this kind of research, you don't have to do a lot. Right. You know, you just have to, you know, when you're, you have to be decent and bring that sort of decency and that like, you're going to do well here. That's kind of all you have to do. It's the smallness. And so I, it makes me think about all of the other things that we're introducing in, in school and lots of other people are doing research on that. But I, I just think about that a lot. What, what are we doing in terms of sense of belonging and connection? I think that's such a powerful message for people that are listening to that when when things can feel overwhelming to just start with those small things. I really want to move also to what you mentioned earlier and thinking about intergroup relationships and and what through John Templeton Foundation was funded to really understand. Talk to us about some of the findings that are coming out of that study and what has emerged and anything you want to highlight and, and maybe just give a little brief overview of of the program. Mm-hmm. So this is a very interesting program of research and a real intellectual stretch for me. It was absolutely 100% generated by my doctoral student who just defended Maniza Dawood. And I think that she'd be fine with me saying that she is the, the first Muslim woman in our doctoral program at Columbia Psychology to graduate. And, you know, she covers and, and sort of openly identifies as, as Muslim. And when she came and she was also a, an undergrad at, at Columbia and, and worked in my lab uh, before. And she has helped me so much in thinking about a few things. One is how impoverished the science is around religion and the real shortcomings that the science has when you just focus on Christianity. 
And I say that because part of the this broad scope of this research was to, one, develop a measure to try to understand what is Muslim adolescent identity. And of course, as good scientists, and we know about, you know, we know about predictive validity and so forth, we just took many of these, like, you know, these Christian scales, and we just swapped out the yeah. word Christian, and we stuck the word Muslim in there. We were, like, <laughs> we're ready to rock and roll. And, you know, that didn't work well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, surprise. <laughs> Surprise, surprise. (laughs) That didn't work well. And then, you know, here we are. We're like, okay, this is like, we're not getting anything here. And a lot of it is the, the broader project is really trying to ask the question of what is the relationship between many of the character values, you know, patience, virtue, that are things that the Templeton Foundation cares about. Are they already part and parcel of Muslim adolescent identity? And I love that question because, again, it's another way to think of a group that is otherized as thriving, but also as thriving through religion, which are two things that people don't think of when they think about teenagers, right? They think about trouble and they think about heathenism. And and so we're, we're really sort of turning it on our head. So that's piece one. The second piece is that we have just, you know, been blessed and been able to, to work with MIS, which is the Muslim Interscholastic Tournament, which is a, a tournament. Meniza was part of one of the early founding members that literally takes Muslim youth from all over the country. And they compete in competitions. They are incredible. People don't know this, but there are many sort of religious-based competitions that are all over. But what's nice about this one is that we were able to kind of interject ourselves and study Muslim identity. We're able to look at social networks. And we were interested in a second question, which is um, political engagement. And that's another kind of intellectual turn on its head because, as you can see from the news, the common stereotype is many Muslim youth disengage from American politics. But our data does not show that at all. And in fact, they're highly engaged and they are engaged in American politics, you know, and doing things in their community to really increase political engagement. And so it's sort of becoming the idea that this is a group that is anti-American is not consistent what we're finding at all, which which we knew we would find. But it, sometimes you just you do some research to make a point. Yes, you know? yeah, totally. And the third piece is to really try to understand the relationship between identity, how it flourishes in the context of these religious tournaments, and, and then how does that help students cope in school? And what we see is that even though there are very high levels of outright bullying, I mean, you know, discrimination, otherizing, both the tournament, Muslim identity, Islam as a religion, you know, really is, is a one form of a protective factor. And, you know, there's so much controversy in the literature about what is the impact of religion on psychological well-being and on emotional well-being and physical well-being. And again, this is one of those things where, you know, I'm representative of the scientific community in this space, but it's the youth, it's the directors of the MIS program, the imam that has been helping us. They are the scientists because, you know, they're looking at this, this Duke Christianity measure that we added the word Muslim to, and they're like, we don't know what this is, but how about think about this? 
And I was like, you know, we are going to do some measures. And they're like, well, why don't you do some narrative storytelling and then have, this was their form of affirmation. They were like, why don't you just have the students on Zoom bring photographs of things that mean something? And I was like, oh, we're not going to have 150 measure. We want to measure something. <laughs> and, and so it's a journey, but I, I think that the the uh, impact of this is going to be tremendous, both for the research community and re, really rethinking about collective networks and, and religion and the impact of religion as, as sort of a protective factor. And I also think that it's, it's an empowering research message for, I think, the, the Muslim community. You know, I think a lot of this people already know but sometimes research can be affirming. And again, I don't want to be the outsider in saying that I'm affirming them, but the findings themselves, I think, are, are quite affirming. But it goes back to, Ben, what we, how we started this podcast, right? It's about the soil. And here the soil is Islam. That is the soil. And it, it's, it's protective even in the context of schools and classrooms. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it really is. A, I, I was struck by that project with Miss too, of really moving a group of stigmatized youth and highlighting the character strengths that are in the community that that really yes. are a part of the community and and, yes. and connected to community and yes. that it plays out in these tournaments in a way of these relationships that are long lasting and 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 how it does benefit even beyond that tournament you think of like yes. a short term kind of interaction for a lot of people, that will wear down over the year. But for these youth, and, and the description was really about how they carried that sense of identity going to the back yes. to their schools. To, back to their yeah, schools. and how important yes. that is. And I love that idea. Yeah, I'll say this. I know we're coming to a close. But the work of stereotypes and challenging stereotypes of really moving people from other to highlighting the virtues and strengths and, and what's in the community and lifting that up. And some of the era that you came up in was really good at picking out the negatives, the things within yep. traditionally and historically marginalized communities. And, and I think that work is so powerful, Valerie, of saying every kid matters. And it goes back to that idea of your mom that context drives the class. Yes. Context drives a class. She she would I, she would say that, and and I continue to believe it. I, I'm also aware that I am part of a, a generation. There's a younger generation that is much more impatient, I think, and and much you know feeling that you know change can't happen over the course of a, of a seven year study. But I stand by the idea that science is a form of social justice. You know, people come to me for, for a reason and people come to scientists for, for a reason. And we have an incredible responsibility, but we also have a, have a role to play because our data is by far from perfect, but it can help you say something. And the, the fact that when you have better and better models in schools of not just that teachers care, but what does good caring look like? Right. I mean, you know, that a lot of that comes from the relationship between, you know, the, I hate this term, but the scientists and, and, and practitioners. So I think that that work is, is incredibly important. And, you know, the last thing that I'll say about the, this whole Templeton Foundation is, you know, it, it was a struggle because, you know, again, as an African-American, you know, woman of color, I was like, I don't want to study virtues. Right. You know, I was like, what does that look like? And and I had some really honest conversations with some of the people at the Templeton Foundation. Yep. And I, because, you know, virtues, you know, there's something about the sound of that right. that, that kind of sounds like, you right. know, right. Like, I don't know. Yeah, what is <laughs> 
kind of like, you know, that you're Pollyannish, that you can't yeah. understand what's actually going on. And what I have found is that this funding has just been an incredible opportunity to offer grounding. I mean, no one else would fund this kind of, of research, which is hard and, and new. And, you know, it's gotten me thinking about questions about do people who care about diversity, mm. is that a virtue? Right. Is our virtues yeah. just a pre or you know sort of a yeah. preset of characteristics? Or if you are openly inclusive, is that a, a right. virtue? It's, it's gotten me thinking in more expansive ways about how you can build on that yeah. idea. Yeah. So it's been a, a great relationship. Cer- certainly one that I never thought I was going to have, but yeah. I, I'm thrilled to be to be part of the, their community. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. I think there's so much more there to dive into. So as we, we're going to close it out, and here's what I would propose we, we close it out, is if you, and, and this is, a, I know it can be a kind of a put you on the spot, but what are, I don't know, one to two things that you are uh, passionate about, that you're, you feel deeply about when it comes to, I won't say giving advice to practitioners or teachers, but that you would like to share with 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 them as we as we close out this podcast that is a, a good question one is easy and then I'll have to think of I'll have to think about the other one but but one is that diversity has become a a word that is fraught but the basic idea is that people from different backgrounds and walks of life when they come together can contribute something special and new and different. And when you set the grounding for psychological safety, it is magical. And I really believe in the power of diversity. And the piece that's missing that I think many teachers don't realize is the second piece. You have to set the psychological grounding. And I have to look at you, Ben, and say, you have something to share that I need, that I want to know. And I have to draw that, I have to create the conditions to draw that out. And when you put the psychological safety together with the diversity, that's how innovation is going to really grow. You know, is it, you know, SpaceX? Is it artificial intelligence? No, it's going to be children that are going to turn into adults that live in these diverse communities. And that's what I think we need to continue to think about daily as well as invest in. And I think the, the, the other thing is, this is very simple, but all of the science points to the incredible importance of belonging. And I think another piece of advice that, that I try to take and I think is important to leave with is belonging is not in the person. It's in the environment. And so you as a teacher have to set the conditions for belonging. You can't assume it's there. And you can't assume that your charisma, your charismatic personality is going to bring it out. You have to think about who each student is and set the conditions for their belonging. And that's how you increase belonging. It's not a personality characteristic. It's a characteristic of the environment. And I think when you put those two things together, right, the power of diversity and the power of the context in creating belonging, it's a singular message of, I think, hope and promise about a cosmopolitan, diverse group of young people that are going to hopefully flourish and thrive in the future. So that's what I would end with. Well, that's beautiful. We'll end with that. And thank you so much, Valerie, for your time. And I really appreciate you and all that you do. And You were wonderful. This was a great, this was a great, great interview. Um, what a wonderful, you know, honor and privilege to be part of your community and happy to come back anytime. So thank you. Sounds great. Okay, thanks. 
If you have the chance, we'd love it if you could review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews are one of the best ways for others to find out about the show. On behalf of everyone at Search Institute, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.